to Paul's letter to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. I'll be reading verses 1 through 11. Our focus will be on verses 3 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, You are good and You do good. Your mercy, grace, and goodness are thick all around us. Have mercy on us for how little we express our thanks. And how often we selfishly petition you. And forgive us that whenever thanks is present, quite often it's just as centered on ourselves as our petitions were. Bless now the preaching of your word so that we might enjoy the privilege of prayer. Father, forgive us of our idolatrous prayers. Have mercy on us so that we might enjoy the privilege of prayer, offering up thanksgiving to you and petitions in a way that's to the praise of your glory. In Christ's name we ask this. Amen. Paul's openings typically have four parts. From, to, greeting, thanksgiving, and a prayer. So we covered those first three parts in the previous uh, study, Philippians. From, Paul, to, the Philippians, greeting, grace, and peace. Now we look at the thanksgiving and prayer portion of his greeting. And what you see here is basically 1 Thessalonians 5, 6-18 exemplified. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. 
Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. Have you ever thought that that concoction there, it's an odd mix. Have you ever, have you ever pondered that? Rejoice in thanksgiving, you see that, and then pray. And so the pray, the praying that Paul would have in mind there is something distinct from a kind of rejoicing and thanksgiving brought before God. I think it would clearly have in mind the idea of petition and supplication. If you've never thought that odd, then you can see it perhaps in Paul's prayer here. You've got two parts to it. First part, thanksgiving, and the second part, supplications being offered up to God, petitions offered up to God on behalf of others. Whenever we think of thanksgiving, we might associate that in our minds with contentment. When we think of petitions, we might associate that with discontent. And so, how do these two things get mingled and mixed together? But rather than being puzzled at how they can go together, we need to realize that they're unstable compounds left to themselves. So, these two go together something like sodium chloride. Uh, You take take the elements independently, and they're deadly. They're bad for you. So, even thankfulness... If it's all alone, can prove to be something corrosive like chlorine. If it's all alone. If that's all there is to your prayer life, is just thanksgiving. You might think that a good thing, but what it really might indicate is you're really at home and comfortable in this world, and you bless God that that's so. Like You just enjoy a life of ease and pleasure and comfort, and so you're constantly thanking God, but it's all an expression of selfishness and idolatry. Just as much as the guy that petitions for things that all center around himself, you see? And so we easily realize that prayer, if it's all petition, like that's all that our prayer life is, is just petition, 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 that's something like sodium. It's explosive, it's dangerous, you don't want that. But if we err in mixing our drinks one way, uh, I, I'd reckon most of us err on the side of being heavy on petition and light on thanksgiving. But the imbalance says this, either way, we do neither one well. The imbalance says we do neither one well. If, if there's not both parts, thanksgiving and petition, I would venture you're not doing either one of those well. It's like having a wheel out of alignment. You'll find one wheel out of alignment means you can turn neither left nor right very well. And so rather than reacting to the sermon the way I think we typically do when we look at a text like this, rather than reacting and thinking, I don't thank God enough, I need to double down on thanksgiving in my prayers, what we need more than that is an alignment not of one will, but of all of our wills to go in the same direction. So rather than what happens is we try to play chemist uh, more more, more chloride, more sodium. And we, we try to play chemist, and when we do, accidents happen. 
And rather than trying to play chemist, what we need to do is receive God's salt. We need our prayers to be salted by the Word of God. We need God's forgiveness. We need His grace. And we need His instruction. Not only how to express thanksgiving to Him. Not only how to, yeah, not only how to express thanksgiving to Him, but how to petition properly. If, if our prayers are lopsided, what that means is there's something underlying both any expression of thanksgiving and petition that's gone awry. The problem's deeper. So, Paul begins, verse 3, with thanks. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. He begins with thanks, which whenever you're examining your prayer life, that's a healthy sign to look for. Do your petitions follow and flow from your thanksgiving? Or how often are your petitions just tacked on at the end? They're an afterthought. Even worse, they're tacked on at the end in a way where we treat God like a child. As if a little bit of sugar will help the medicine go down. We've, we've brought out all this selfishness and, and oh yeah, God, thank you for, for what you've done. As if, as if saying, uh, you know, the, the magic word, please, being polite about it, having good manners in our prayers makes God more, li- more likely to answer our prayers. Whenever Paul remembers these Philippians, he thanks God. In our materialistic age, <laughs> thanksgiving is absent enough. How much more thanksgiving for people? You thank God for your stuff. You thank God for your comforts. You thank God for all the things you enjoy. But how often is it people that you thank God for? And with this, do you begin to sense a bit why it is that our, even our thanksgiving can be so idolatrous and selfish Are thanksgiving and prayer so sinful before a holy God? Whenever you think of people in your prayers, whenever people do come into your prayers, are they something you thank God for or to complain to God about? Are they something you thank God for or complain to God about? Paul remembers people, he remembers the Philippians in this instance, he remembers the Philippians the way a dog remembers his owner and not a cat. Do you sense whenever you come home that your dog remembers every good thing about you? Like the scolding that you, you gave him for you know, eating your couch, that's out of his mind. He just remembers the best thing about you. Whereas whenever you come home, it seems your cat remembers every wrong you've ever done in your life. Paul remembers the Philippians the way a dog remembers their owner. It's not that the Philippians were without fault. As we go through Philippians, you'll see they have their faults. And it's not that Paul's blind to those. But what Paul does is he sees the good in the Philippians for which God is due thanks. And so he expresses this thanksgiving for them. James tells us that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. It's an odd pairing. Every good gift is from God, who's this Father, and there's no variation. Think about the goodness of God in littering this earth profusely with good, and couple that with His immutability. He doesn't change. You will never be short of reasons to express thanksgiving to God. If there's good, God is to be thanked. Every good and perfect gift comes from His hand. 
if you look out in this world and see good, He's due thanks. And you see with this how it's good and healthy for our souls to express thanks to God, and it's good and healthy for other souls to express thanks to God for them, to let them know that you thank God for them. Dia Carson masterfully brings this out in his just a great little book, uh, Praying with Paul, and I can do no better at bringing this out than he does with these three paragraphs. So forgive me this lengthy quotation, but I think it brings it out so well. He's at this point dealing with Paul's uh, prayer of thankfulness for the Thessalonians. Although the thanksgiving is not addressed to the Thessalonians, but rather to God for the Thessalonians, nevertheless, it's cast in such a way as to encourage them. We may best understand this if we contrast Paul's approach with two alternatives. First, the backslapping flatterer constantly compliments everyone regardless of the quality of their work. This extrovert comes alongside and bellows, terrific job, wonderful piece of work, never seen flowers better arranged, brilliant exposition, absolutely brilliant. I don't know how the ushers would get by if it were not for your contribution. The strokes and compliments are so thickly distributed that you wonder if this person is trying to win a popularity contest. Perhaps the stream of compliments is deployed to elicit compliments in return. If you praise people long enough, they start praising you back. They feel they have very little choice. For all the jovial encouragement, doubt soon arises about the level of the flatterer's discernment. What starts off as a gift of encouragement becomes a kind of loud habit, a superficial froth regurgitated in all directions without discernment or sincerity. It makes some people feel good. It embarrasses others. It fosters holiness in no one. Second, the sober, theologically precise types deeply committed to the truth that all praise finally belongs to God alone. So they rarely thank you for anything, and then only very begrudgingly. They recognize rightly that anything good that we have or are or do is ultimately, ultimately springs from our Heavenly Father's gracious hands. They conclude wrongly that no encouragement should be administered to those who are merely secondary mediators of such divine grace. You put in countless hours on the mission program and never receive a word of thanks, let alone praise. These people apparently believe that such praise might go to your head and puff you up with self-importance that might be dangerous for your spiritual well-being. Perhaps they think you should be satisfied with God's well done on the last day. Paul's approach in many of his epistles, and not least here, is radically different from both of these extremes. He encourages Christians by thanking God for His grace in their lives. More precisely, he encourages Christians by telling them that he thanks God for His grace in their lives. Thus, he has simultaneously drawn attention to the Thessalonians' spiritual growth, thereby encouraging them, and insisted that God is the one to be thanked for it, thereby humbling them. There's simply no way that these believers can thoughtfully listen to what Paul says and then smugly pat themselves on the back 
God and God alone is to be praised for the signs of grace in their lives. Yet, nonetheless, they cannot help but feel encouraged to learn that the apostle himself has observed God's work in their lives and rejoices because of it. So when we thank God for others, whenever we express that thanks to God for others in the presence of those others whom we are thanking God for, it not only glorifies God in us, it very likely will result in them glorifying God alongside us. So every time Paul says that he thinks on the Philippians in his prayers, he remembers the Philippians, every time he does so, he joyfully offers up thanks to God. Why? And the answer given is helpful in avoiding two wrongs we're prone to in being thankful. So the first is a kind of worldly thankfulness where we just thank God for stuff and things that center around ourselves. The second kind of of effort we might try to make at, at thankfulness, I'll label spiritual unthankfulness. We say we're going to be unthankful for anything not spiritual. It's a kind of piety that will thank God for something like prayer but not pie. So why does Paul thank God for the Philippians? Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Because of their partnership in the gospel. So note this. Paul's expression of Joyful expression of thanks to God concerns himself. But it doesn't center on himself. It concerns Paul, but it doesn't center on Paul. What does this partnership involve? It's the same word you often have throughout the scriptures, New Testament scriptures, translated fellowship. And at times, it's translated contribution. Frequently, whenever that collection being taken up for the, uh, the saints in Jerusalem is mentioned, this word is used in regards to it. So, Romans 15.26, For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor. They've been pleased to make some partnership. They've been pleased to make some fellowship for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. So part of this partnership that Paul's speaking of here, giving thanks to God in relation to the Philippians, is their financial contribution. It's this gift that they've delivered to him via Epaphroditus. You, you can't miss this in Philippians 4, 14 through 15. A related word, a derivative of the word, is used in speaking of their gift. Yet it was kind of you to share. You could put partner fellowship there. It was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving. 
except you only. Now the giving and receiving says something about this partnership in the gospel that begins to then pull you out of understanding that it, while it involves their supporting Him in physical, substantial, tangible ways that deal with the body, it goes beyond that as well. You see it just in this. It's a partnership in the gospel. What'll be, this will be made clearer what the nature of this partnership in the gospel involves not simply supporting Paul to do gospel work, but doing themselves. That will be really clear in verse 7. But this phrase alone, that it's a partnership in the gospel, that this involves more than they're just supporting Paul, I think is plain. You can begin to sense here. What is primary in this partnership is not Paul, it's the gospel. They support Paul, but the reason why they support Paul is the gospel. I think Lewis gets at the nature of how such partnership and fellowship works among the saints in his book, The Four Loves, in particular, where he's drawing a contrast between the love eros, or romantic love, and the love of friendship. He says, lovers are always talking to one another about their love. Friends, hardly ever about their friendship. Lovers are normally face to face. Absorbed in each other. Friends, side by side. Absorbed in some common interest. Paul's friendship, this fellowship, this partnership, is absorbed, obsessed with Christ. And this provides quite a contrast now, understanding this, with what's happening in Philippians versus what happens in Galatians. Read what follows Paul's from, to, greeting in Galatians versus what unfolds here in Philippians. What makes the difference? Well, the Philippians, he's rejoicing and thanking God for their partnership in the gospel. Whenever he writes to the Galatians, they are abusing and distorting and perverting the gospel. So you see, Paul's friends to them both, but the priority is the gospel. Really, the Christ of the gospel. Now, from Paul's joyful thanksgiving, we turn to a joyful expression of confidence. Verse 6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. How does this joyful confidence relate to his joyful thanksgiving? Notice the time references. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So we go from the first day to the last day. From their justification all the way through their sanctification to their glorification. From beginning to end. And whenever he says that he began this good work, that takes you back. 
to verse 5, and this partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So verses 5 and 6 take you from the beginning, their conversion, their regeneration, their salvation, the beginning of that, all the way to the end. The good work that Paul is confident of in verse 6 is the good work that happened on that first day wherein they entered into gospel partnership with Paul. That gospel partnership then is this good work that Paul is certain God will continue to do in them to the last day. So what Paul is expressing confidence in is what he's just given God thanks for. He is, he's full of thanks because he's certain that what he's seeing and giving thanks to God for is not something that will be abandoned. God does not have a shop full of well-begun but abandoned projects. When God begins a good work, He will see it through to the end, to completion, to perfection. You see how that fuels thanksgiving? Often, we will speak of the perseverance of the saints. The saints persevere in the faith. That's true. What you see here is that underlining that is this doctrine. The preservation of the saints. He will keep them. And you can see the relationship of these two truths in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Paul commands, exhorts the Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You do that. You persevere in the faith. I exhort you. Because for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Understanding then that Paul intends for the saints not simply to maintain the faith, but to progress in the faith. Then understand that God doesn't simply preserve the saints. That's true. I mean, it's not just like a preservation where we're locked tight in a, in a, in a static state until glorification. We might be able to do better. Perhaps we could speak of God's, to really get out the experience of it, I think, of God's pounding and polishing the saints. It's a continual progressive work. He pounds us into conformity with Christ. And He polishes us so that we better reflect His glory. And His pounding and polishing is working towards an end where we will be complete and whole. Such joyful gratitude expressed to God in light of all this understanding then should keep us from thinking that what we began in the Spirit can somehow be perfected by the flesh. It provides another contrast with what Paul said to the Galatians. Are you so foolish 
Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Paul then goes on in verses 7 and 8 to demonstrate the legitimacy of his affection that he's expressing towards the Philippians. It's right, he says, for him to feel this way because he holds them in his heart. And the reason he holds them in his heart is because they are partakers with him of grace. Now, what does it mean to be a partaker with him of grace? I think you'll see it's identical virtually to being a partner in the gospel. It's a simply all this is saying, you are partners with me in grace, thus it's right for me to feel this way about you, is simply looking at what it means to be a partner in the gospel from a different perspective so that it becomes plain to them why it's appropriate for Paul to express grace for the uh, thanks for this. In what way do they partake with Paul of grace in his imprisonment? In 1, 12 through 14, Paul wants to make it plain to them, my imprisonment has served for the advance of the gospel. We're partners in the gospel, and my imprisonment, I want you to know, has served to advance it. And the reason my imprisonment has been, been able to function in such a way, in part, is because of your partnership and the support you've sent to me in this state. Back to chapter 4 and verse 14. Remember, he said, It was kind of you to share in my trouble. As their partners in the gospel, they not only support Paul in his suffering, now you begin to sense a bit of how it is that their partnership in the gospel does not simply involve them supporting Paul to do gospel work, but sharing with Paul in the work itself. Because they don't simply, uh, it was good of you to share in my trouble. And they don't simply share in that trouble as they support Paul in his affliction, but as they themselves suffer for the gospel. Philippians 1, 27-30. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Since the gospel work commended there, striving. And not frightened by anything in, uh, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but suffer for His sake. It's been granted to you that you should believe. When did this gospel partnership begin? The first day when they believed. And that's not only been granted to you, but right now it's been granted to you to suffer for His sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Your striving in the gospel results in you suffering for His sake. And that means you're engaged in the very same conflict, Paul says, that you saw I had and am now in. 
They partake with Him in this grace. Not only that grace, but also in His defense and confirmation of the gospel. Those words together have a technical sense that relate to the trial Paul is soon to have, where he will make an apology, a defense for the gospel, in hope of the gospel's confirmation or validation, vindication, so that his expected release comes about. But I don't think that's narrowly all that Paul intends by the phrase defense and confirmation of the gospel. It's simply that his immediate situation makes a vivid expression of something that describes all of Paul's ministry. You see him speak the same way in 116 of his being put here for the defense of the gospel. And while you could say Paul is in this state, in prison, for the defense of the gospel, I think in both these instances, it's clear that they are simply expressions of Paul's ministry as a whole, making a defense of the gospel in hope of its confirmation. And so, whenever you think about David Burks and Altus Reformed Baptist Church, and you think about some of those souls that you've gotten to know, give thanks. Rejoice. And know that with those partners in the gospel, you share in the grace involved therein for the cause of the gospel. And know whatever happens, what God has began, He'll see through to completion. Think of the Lingles. Think of the Thai people who have heard of Christ, believed on Christ, who are being discipled. Watch the video and hear them singing praise and then turn your thanks to God that you are allowed the privilege and joy of partnering in the gospel and that you partake of the grace that's involved In that gospel partnership. Think of Jason Vance. Valley Life Arrowhead. And the souls that have come to know Christ. Don't simply give thanks to God for them. Express to them your thanks to God for them. This affection that Paul expresses for the Philippians. Notice that it's a yearning affection in verse 8. For God is my witness. He swears to this affection. It's true, I tell you. God is my witness. How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now what's the nature of Paul's yearning? 2.24 will make it plain that Paul wants to be with them. So being in their presence is part of this yearning, but he doesn't just want to be in their presence to be in their presence. In chapter 1, 22 through 25, Paul speaks of wanting to be in someone's presence. He just wants to be in someone's presence. He wants to be in Christ's presence. But he says, if I remain, that means 
fruitful labor. Remaining and continuing with you for your progress and joy in the faith. Verse 25. If I'm with you, I want to be with you again. Because of the nature of our partnership. And what we both partake in. Seeing you conform to the image of Christ. In other words, this yearning is directly related to everything Paul has just expressed thanks for. And you can tease this out in seeing that he says he yearns for them with the affections of Christ. What does Christ long for for his bride? Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with words, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. When Paul says he yearns for them with the affections of Christ, it's a yearning to do gospel ministry in their presence for the purpose of seeing them conformed to Christ, presented to Him, holy and blameless. So Mark, Mark, uh, Matthew Harmon rightly explains that what you see here, with Paul's yearning, these affections that he's expressing, are not so much, he says, gushing temperament. Or I'd like to say, gushing sentiment. They are gushing Christology. They ooze of Christ. And so you see how this yearning, as it's rooted in and expressive of Paul's thanksgiving, brings us to petition now. The petition that follows. With verse 8, we've transitioned from a kind of thankfulness to longing. Gratitude to petitions. Both his gratitude and his petitions, both his, his thanksgiving and his longing, are rooted in the same truths. See how we're getting underneath it? My, my prayers are full of petitions, void of thanksgiving. So we just try to double up on thanksgiving. But we're bringing ourselves to the thanksgiving still. The right truth wasn't under the petitions, which is why there's not thanksgiving. John Newton demonstrates how they go together well. Writing in a letter, I'm generally carried through my public work with some liberty. Because I'm not put to shame before the people, I seem content and satisfied. I wish to be more thankful for what the Lord is pleased to do amongst us. But at the same time. To be more earnest with him. For a further outpouring of his spirit. The same truths. The same things underlied both Newton's thanksgiving. And his longing. All of us know this. Have you ever received a gift that really works with food? For which you're really thankful, and yet, the same thing 
causes you to long for more. The very thing Paul thanks God for here is what he now expresses longing for more of. The good work that Paul has rejoiced in, that he's seen in the Philippians, he now in his petition cries out that they would know more of. Paul's request comes as one sentence in verses 9 through 11. One request that Paul works all the way out to the end. If this petition were a math problem, Paul not only gets the right answer. Theology math, is, it's always easy to get the right answer to the praise and glory of God. That's easy. You can always, Jesus or to the praise and glory of God. It's always easy to get the right answer to a theology math problem. The, Paul not only gives the right answer though, he shows his work. That, that's the difficult part, is to show the work of how you get from this to the praise and the glory of God. Heresy happens in the middle. They'll give the same answer at the end. Heresy happens in the middle. So how, how do we get there? Paul prays, that they may abound in love, but not simply love, love coupled with knowledge and discernment. In his first letter to the Corinthians, he says, knowledge all alone, knowledge without love, knowledge puffs up. But also, love without knowledge, if it's not just mushy sentimentality, then it, love doesn't know how to love. It doesn't know what, what the loving thing to do for the other person is. True love is not mindless, it is mindful. You sense the same pairing in chapter 2, verse 2, where Paul exhorts him, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. The love that's to characterize the saints has content. It has an object. It's not all soul, it's soul and mind. And Paul asks this so that they may approve what is excellent. Verse 10. To approve what is excellent requires both heart and head. For you to approve what is excellent is more than a matter of your intellect. It involves both heart and head. Many persons have all the head that they need to choose between right and wrong. What's lacking is a heart to love what is right and hate what is wrong. You need to abound in grace in your heart and your head in order to approve what is excellent. Lewis lamented that the education system of his day was as he put it, creating men without chests. Men without hearts. In other words, here's how it happened. You just give them the facts. Just fill the little ones' heads full of facts. And teach them that all value statements are subjective. Whenever someone makes a value statement about this objective fact here. They don't tell you anything about that thing. They just tell you something about themselves. And what that does is create men without chest. No hearts. They don't learn virtue. 
They don't know how they should... That education should not simply say, here's a fact. It should teach you how to feel about that fact. And they do this. Well, think about this. Our media, our education system today, not only wants to tell you that all value statements are equally valid, they want you to believe that all value statements are equally valid. And what this means is, whenever they call ugly beautiful, you have to say it's beautiful. Whenever they call darkness light, you have to say that that darkness is light. You see? And the way they do this is by controlling the stories that we listen to, hear, watch, read. N.D. Wilson has referred to stories as a kind of catechism of the soul or soul food. He writes, Christian believe, believe that this world is so much more than a mechanical soulless machine, and yet we tend to tell our children stories that we hope will speak only to their intellects. We want to give them a list of facts to tick off, like we're trying to communicate a party platform to new recruits. Like they're nothing but brains ready for programming. We feed their souls sawdust and are surprised when they drift away to other crooks with different tales about reality to other cooks. Kids and adults don't just need the truth in their heads, they need it in their bones. They need to know what courage looks like and tastes like and smells like before they ever have to show it themselves. And they need to do it and they, they need to do justly and love mercy and walk humbly. Heroes and villains can show them why. They need to loathe the darkness and love the light. Can you see why? I begin to understand why with this. And, and understanding heart and head and how you need both in order to approve what is excellent. Can you see why the scriptures so often enmesh their truths? More often than not, they enmesh the truths, the propositions, the facts in narrative in story so that you're not simply told this thing is lovely you are it's portrayed and laid out before your eyes this thing is lovely you're not just told sin brings death that's true but you see it so vividly in the life of david and his sin with Bathsheba. And it grips your heart. You see? You need God's truth. Yes, first in your mind. But then, oh God, may we abound more and more so that truth works its way down and it grips our hearts so that we may approve what is excellent. And having done so, having, having that kind of discernment and wisdom to walk and navigate this life, then you're pure and blameless. Not in any kind of perfective sense in this life. But the result is that more and more so. You become pure and blameless. This is part of the pounding and polishing of the saints that happens. In this abounding. And it has its climax at the day of Christ. It's where we come before Him on that day filled with the fruit of righteousness which I believe is meant to express 
the fruit that is the result of righteousness, which even that is a result of Christ. That comes through Christ. From beginning to end, all this is through and from Christ. It's a prayer. And so that is why on that day, all the glory and praise will be given to God. You see what this is worked towards. This petition is worked towards, not against Thanksgiving, but to the ultimate day of Thanksgiving. Everything that Paul is thanking God for now in the Philippians, he's thanking for with the certainty that God will bring it to completion. And now, looking ahead as he's bringing this petition before God, he's looking at that same day. Knowing it's all working towards that day. Meaning his petition is not contrary to thanksgiving. It's all working towards... It's just more logs on the fire of thanksgiving. Is what it's going to amount to. Atheists and agnostics often will confront Christians with what they call the problem of evil. If God is so good... A great way to reply, I think, is to confront them with the atheistic problem of gratitude. What do you do when you're thankful? Not not just thankful in this, but whenever you sense that transcendent kind of thankfulness that lands on you, what do you do with that? G.K. Chesterton said, the worst moment for an atheist is when he is really thankful and has no one to thank. Saints, we have a God not only to joyfully thank, but to joyfully bring our petitions to. Confident that He will certainly give us all things in Christ for the glory of Christ. And so we ask, knowing that one day, All of this will abound more and more unto thanksgiving and praise. The longing is not ungodly discontent. It's fuel for the fire of gratitude. Paul's longings are are born out of this joy and they will end in joy. They're rooted in the same truths as his thankfulness and they will bloom in thankfulness. What binds both his gratitude and his supplication together is that they're rooted in Christ and not self. They are gospel-rooted, Christ-centered thanksgiving and petition. You want to... You realize thanksgiving is really slim in my prayer life. The way to go at it is not to double down on thanksgiving The way to go at it is to double down on Christ. And then, you'll find your heart not only full of thanksgiving, but longings for the very things you're thanking Him for. You'll find more thanksgiving and more petitions. You'll find grace throughout all of it. So may God's grace be upon us. That abounding now in knowledge and love, hopefully by His Word, we may approve this excellent way.
So instead of simply striving in our flesh to thank God more and petition less, we find ourselves afterwards only to be thanking Him in a more fleshly way. Instead of that, let us turn our eyes to Christ. Let us thank Him for the gospel work that we see Him doing in us, that we see Him doing in those with whom we fellowship. Let us thank God for it and let us praise Him that we've been graced to participate in it. And then thanking Him, seeing it, let us cry out longing for Him to do it more and more so. And let us bring those petitions to Him in confidence that He will do it. Because He said He's promised it. That we would continue to abound in the very grace in which we express our thanks to the praise of His glory, joyfully offering up thanksgiving and petitions, certain that He will make His bride ready for the day of His return. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel work that I've seen you do in the souls of these saints. I thank you for all of them. Father, grant grace that they may abound in knowledge and love to approve what is excellent. being pounded and polished by You for Your glory. Father, we thank You for those You've allowed us to partner with in the Gospel and the grace that we participate in with them in that Gospel work. Thank You for Altus Reformed Baptist Church, North Bangkok Church, Valley Life Surprise. Father, may they abound in love with knowledge and discernment. That they might approve what is excellent and come before Christ pure and blameless on the day of His return. We pray all this in confidence because you've told us You will not abandon us or forsake us. You will complete the good work that you began. We offer up this prayer then. These petitions and this thanksgiving all. With faith. In the name and for the name. Of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.